amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Coming up on this week's show, Half-Life receives a huge 25th anniversary update. Mode 7 style scaling comes to the Mega Drive. And we chat Interplay, Fallout, and audio with Doug Rappaport. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every Friday with our incredible mates at Bitmap Books. Now, if you're Christmas shopping, maybe for yourself, have you seen The Art of the Box? This new book from them is a celebration of video game box art from the formative years of the Atari in the late 70s right up until the modern day with indie and AAA releases. We'll tell you more about that in just a bit, but have a look at that and the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 405, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Appert. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the podcast, of course, a show that every single Friday lives and breathes retro video games, brings you up to speed on all the big happenings in the world of retro from over the last seven days, a little bit of a roundtable discussion in the first half of the show. And then the second half of the podcast is when we welcome on a veteran of the industry, to tell us their story and talk about some of the games we grew up playing. And we've got an amazing guest for you this week, uh, an interview that you just did, Ravi, and uh, I know you were so hyped about this one. Yeah, so this is um, it's a really interesting interview. It's with Doug Rappaport, and he basically worked on audio for video games, but a very specific area, which was he worked on voices and voiceovers. And, uh, you know, he worked for some absolutely amazing companies, Interplay, Mattel, EA, uh, Treyarch and uh, Konami as well. So he kind of worked in that period where CD-ROMs just started coming out and, you know, games were really exploding. And that kind of acquisition of voice talent, getting people onto the games, but also editing it correctly, working out stuff like the sound effects, the atmosphere, you know, um, Fallout is a great game for that because you've got that whole 1940s feel as yeah. well. You've got voiceovers, pre-rendered graphics, but Star Trek Fleet Academy was one that he worked on as well, which was five CDs. So, uh, you know, that <laughs> had a lot of audio on there. And uh, later on, it developed to the point that he was working on the Spider-Man game that had the original cast on there. So Tobey Maguire. And, you know, there's some absolutely amazing stories with this. And Clay Fighter as well. I think that's definitely an underrated fighting series. And for me, it's always a game I like to play around Christmas time because obviously you've got, you know, Bad Mr. Frosty in there as well. So it feels a bit festive, that game. Yeah, yeah. That's a bit different because he had to, you know, uh, put the audio onto a cartridge, yeah. which is uh, a lot differently from doing it on, you know, uh, a PC as well, where you have to consider all the differences with sound cards, um, if people are listening to it on speakers and... Uh, you know, there's, there's uh, a lot of compression and stuff that happens with having to fit them on a cartridge. Yeah, and we love doing the audio ones as well, don't we? You know, being kind of audio guys, we always enjoy doing those. So, uh, Oh, for sure. Our special guest, Doug Rappaport, he's coming up in around half an hour from now. Now, I can't believe that this is our final show of November. 
All right, guys, who's got the Christmas decks up yet? Anyone? Not yet, but there's neighbours, plenty of neighbours <laughs> with their trees up, which I keep spotting as I walk down the drive and stuff like that. I went back to my mum's at the weekend and pretty much all of her street has got like, the Christmas decks up and all the flashing lights outside. No one on my street has yet. I'm not sure whether they're all just like, you know, Scrooges around here, but um, we generally leave it until cause my birthday is December 6th. So we normally leave yeah. it until after my birthday. That's kind of my rule. But I don't know about you guys. I'm starting to feel a bit festive, though, this this time, a bit earlier than I I am a Scrooge as usual. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got to feel festive soon, Ravi, because you know it's coming up in uh, less than a month from now. Uh, we're getting close to you. There you go. <laughs> this year's Christmas quiz now. We are going to be swapping things up a bit this year. Because regular listeners will know. I mean, if uh, if you've just joined the podcast recently, because we do know that People come in all the time. This is basically a bit of a retro hour tradition. The final yeah. show we put out before Christmas. It's uh, We've completely changed the format up and we uh, put on our cheesy Christmas jumpers, get a few mince pies, a couple of drinks, and uh, basically challenge each other to a battle of the retro wits, as it were, don't we? Yeah, it's it's, it's kind of just for fun and we, yeah. we really enjoy it because it's a, a different episode to put out. But um, I always lose. And uh, this time I decided, you know, I'm going to host the quiz. So uh, there's no way that I can lose. I might lose, actually, if I, uh, you know, <laughs> put some really bad questions in that made no sense. How are you feeling about this year then, Joe? Because uh, me and you, basically, we, we've teamed up before, haven't we? And, uh, you know, being on a team, but this year we're going head I'm, to head. I'm, for me, I'm a bit of an anomaly with the Christmas quiz. So how many have we done now? Six? Would this no, be our this, seventh? this will be our yeah, seventh one. This will be maybe this or eighth. Be our seventh maybe. One. Okay, I, I think regret. I've won it twice. Yeah. I've won it on my own and I've won it with Dan. But then when I haven't won it, I think I've come last every time <laughs> with Ravi. <laughs> yeah, that's on my team. <laughs> um, I may have come second once when RMC won. So it'd be that interesting. was close that year, wasn't it? I remember. Yeah, but yeah. Paul and Ollie are going to be competing. So Paul and Ollie, who come on every year, Sometimes yeah, from, they host uh, retro gamer magazine. Yeah, sometimes they host, sometimes they compete. They're competing, mm-hmm. and they they really know their stuff. But we are we won't reveal yet. But we are yeah. doing teams again uh-huh. this year, um, and I'm not with Dan. Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, so anybody's game for the retro hour this year. Well, Bring on the yeah. Amiga questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'd be happy with that. Uh, but yeah, that's basically the thing. We've got Paul and Ollie on a team, Joe, and we basically, Joe and I have had a bit of an agreement. You know, we're not going to be on a team together. Instead, we're going to bring in kind of, you know, special guests to hopefully kind of boost our teams up a little bit and go head to head. So um, I'll be interested to see how it goes this year. And there's, uh, I've already arranged someone who I think is going to be a bit of a secret weapon, but you know what? Bring him on, Mom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, did, I chopped all your games out. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, uh, that could be one of your questions. That damn Sega. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it's always a bit of a giggle that is coming up. Uh, the last episode that we do before Christmas, that'll be in about a month from now. And of course, we do our best of 2023 as well episode. So, only a couple of normal episodes left of the year. Um, but I don't know about you guys. I always love this time of year when we get into the Christmas quiz and everything as well. So, bring it on. We'll tell you more about that in the, uh, the coming weeks. And of course, feel free to play along at home we always get a load of people asking about it don't we and people listening on the drive back for christmas so it always feels really festive so uh, not long to wait until that but of course before that we like to bring up to speed on what's been happening in the world of retro gaming and technology from over the last seven days and this is something we kind of missed out on last week but since then i've seen this absolutely everywhere that half-life over the weekend celebrated it's 25th anniversary, and Valve have actually done some pretty big things for it. I was trying to wrap my head around if this was like an official like release, 
mm. um, like an official update, and it is, isn't it? Yes. It's come from Valve. I can't believe it's 25 years old. It looks, yeah. It's just such a stunning <laughs> game. You know, it just looks so good. I think it's because of, I just, I can't like, can't bring myself to, to believe that PC was so advanced back then. <laughs> yeah, November, November like, 1998, that game came out, which kind crazy. of feels like about yesterday. But And, yeah. and you know, it was... It was a changing point for uh, digital distribution as well. So, like, Steam, the only reason I got on Steam was Half-Life. And uh, I think that pushed a lot of people to get into that model. And now you look at it and, yeah, it's one of the biggest platforms and everybody's getting digitally mm. delivered games. But back then, Half-Life was, like, one of one of the main titles that kind of encouraged people to do that. Yeah, well, yeah I mean, Steam started in 2003, so I mean, it was yeah, a good five years after Half-Life came out, but you're right, that was kind of one of the, the instigators that people would go on there, you know, to, to kind of do a digital download of that game. But actually, that is one thing that kind of ties into this 25th anniversary now. Um, they've actually released some stuff on Steam that was previously only on um, CD, including mm. a couple of uh, updates that were originally, there was one of them that they were calling a um, kind of a, a long-lost Half-Life DLC that was called Uplink that was originally kind of a, a demo level that was given away on some magazine cover CDs back in the day. I've got a feeling they give it away on the PlayStation um, mag when it came out on the uh, on the PS2 as well. But basically they, um, they released this on February 12th of 1999. And even though they called this a demo of Half-Life, it was actually kind of alternate content because... Um, this is kind of set in an alternate universe and it was content that was kind of based on some of the cut scenes and cut levels from Half-Life, but it never actually made it into the full game. Yeah. Cause there was like uh, blue shift was an expansion as well. Uh, yeah. You know, where, where you'd experience it through another person's eyes. And um, th- there were kind of lots of different expansions, but good to see that this one's hit it. And uh, I think, you know, this update is great because there's a huge store as well on steam, uh, like steam workshop, and there was a lot of mods, you know, Counter-Strike was a mod that came out of Half-Life. Um, so hopefully with this update and like, you know, bug fixes and stuff that they've done, they'll be able to have that uh, workshop available and all of those kind of mods might get a new lease of life. Another thing they put in here as well is um, a series called the Half-Life Further Data Discs. Now, these were basically some freebies they gave out, gave out in, um, in game shops mm. back in 1999 that contains some additional multiplayer levels and also some kind of different, you know, additional maps and that kind of thing in there as well. Um, that again, have never really been available to download officially online, uh, but they've restored these uh, three multiplayer maps that they give out in these retail stores back in 99. And there's also four entirely new multiplayer maps they've put in there as well. Yeah, Contamination, Pool Party, Disposal and Rocket Frenzy, which all sound fantastic. Um, unfortunately, it, I say unfortunately, fortunately it was free for one day, yeah. uh, the actual <laughs> anniversary of it, which was last Monday, but fortunately it is only 71 pence if you yes. want to buy this, including <laughs> the game. So you, it's not 71p for the DLC, it's 71p for this entire pack, um, which I'm assuming is what, like 99 cents a dollar yeah. or something. I'd like get that. it quick though, cause that expires on a Tuesday. So, um, okay. you've got until November 28th if you want to get that. And also problem. on uh, YouTube, they've just released a 25th anniversary doc yeah. as well. And that's like an hour long and that's all free on YouTube, which is awesome. Sweet. Yeah. Massive, really well produced documentary with a lot of the original creators of Half-Life as well. So, uh, obviously legendary game and you know, we've talked about it before on the podcast. It kind of felt like that's when FPS games, kind of went narrative, isn't it? You know, really brought that story 
into first yeah it wasn't it wasn't just kill everything yeah (laughs) yeah it it definitely was a a point where fps's grew up a bit sadly no further to half-life 3 but you know we remain Mm -hmm. optimistic that one day (laughs) but uh, this should tide you over until then so uh, nice to see valve giving it some love lots of uh, dlc available now and of course that one hour anniversary documentary as well that i'll link up in the show notes if you want a bit of half-life action this weekend now obviously you're a mega drive kid Back in the day, Joe, were you ever jealous of mates who had Super Nintendos and you saw those Mode 7 graphics? I, I, you know what? I'd love to say, yeah. Be like, yeah, I really wanted Mode 7. I didn't know what it was until I was a teenager, until at least like <laughs> 12, maybe. Um, but looking back, you know, you know, there is something about the Mega Drive. Looking back, you know, Super Nintendo. It probably did have better graphics. As, as an 7. Amiga user, I wanted the Super Nintendo. Um, there you go. Yeah, I was like that's Mode 7 it. all over that. Well, for people who don't know what Mode 7 is, it's basically if you're playing games like, uh, give me an example. Um, F-Zero. Yeah, that's a good example. Mario Kart. Yeah, so basically, yeah, yep. Mario Kart's a really good one as well. So Space you've got Harrier, the, It's basically those, um, when it allows a background layer to be rotated and scaled. Yeah. You know, so you get those effects, the uh, the wrapping effects, are, you know, the translation reflection effects as well so basically if you had played sort of like mario kart the way it kind of wraps around which was a very impressive effect especially when it zoomed in and out as well mm-hmm. um which yeah, yeah. is something that i know they did kind of bring that to the mega drive with the mega cd yeah if you had that it could kind of do some kind of yeah there was a batman returns the driving yeah, game that was race, yeah. that on the sega cd kind of had like you know, faux mode seven graphics. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason we're talking about this is there is a game coming out for the Mega Drive, as they do, called Gears of Rage, um, which through the power of blast processing, <laughs> got to be in there, is bringing mode seven or pseudo mode seven style graphics to uh, the Mega Drive. Um, and there's no tomfoolery or trickery here. Apparently, this is all purely on original hardware, and it will be from original cartridge when it does eventually come out. And trying to tell you what Gears of Rage is, it it's imagine it's I want to say it's a bit like rock and roll racing for the Super Nintendo, but it's it's a top down racing game, isn't it? Uh, probably yeah. more like Micro Machines, actually. Yeah, Micro Machines, um, Skid Marks, a bit like that as well. Yeah, Skid Marks. That's a, yeah, that's that's really good examples, but it has you know kind of scaling pseudo mode 7 graphics where it zooms in and out depending how far away and how close you know the effect the reminds me of the, the original grand theft auto it's kind of a bit yeah. like that isn't it yeah you know what yeah and, and the detail of it isn't a, a million miles away from the original grand theft auto um and it does look it looks really fantastic you know and if they really have truly got this running on uh you know off cartridge and stuff like that and you know no trickery just pure blast processing like they say <laughs> um, which i know is obviously the gimmick and everything um it does look really really good um i i was thrown off i thought it was going to be a beat em up where you could get yeah. cars and stuff like that um but i think you know that was to grab your attention which is really cool and it's coming from uh, laserbit games who have done a couple of mega drive games uh, in the past but yeah looking forward to this one do, so, do, um, do you remember one called hyperzone that was kind of Mode 70. Oh, I don't like, remember that one. Like, like Space Harrier is. Is that on the snares, was it? Yeah, 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 the top and the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which, I, I mean, these games are definitely, I must admit, I prefer the more kind of traditional, you know, looking out the window kind of races or behind the car. Um, but I think that, you know, it does look cool, this effect. It looks a bit slower than I think you'd see on the 
Super Nintendo, but again, they're doing this all in software. And we've got to say, this isn't a finished product at the moment. I mean, they've been working on this since around early 2022, so about 18 months. Um, but apparently they've got some big announcements coming up soon. It looks like it might be near the finishing line as well. So um, yeah, very cool to see. I mean, you know, yeah. it's, it's always nice when you get new games coming out like this. I've got to say, you know, there, there is kind of a bit of a mixed reaction looking through some of the comments. People saying, oh, you know... It's kind of a bit slow and pixelated, nowhere near. I think it's a, it's a certain look for a certain time, and <laughs> some people, you know, they're not the biggest fans of it. Like, um, yeah, uh, one thing was ham mode on the Amiga and ham mode games, and some people absolutely hated them. And I, I always kind of liked it a bit, you know. There's like stretch textures and stuff like that. Some people don't like it, and some people love it. So yeah, I, I guess it, it's for a certain audience, but it's also got that nostalgia factor. Yeah, I think it's a tech demo as well. It's always cool when, uh, you know, you finally get something that people said your console couldn't do back in the day, and you're like, ah, might have took me 30 years, but look, we've done it. So uh, oh, The console wars are far, uh, yeah, far yeah. from over then. And back on. So, uh, yeah, look, looking forward to that. Gears of Rage, uh, hopefully landing on a Mega Drive slash Genesis with those scaling effects very soon. Now, you mentioned the Amiga there, Ravi, and uh, there's been some big Amiga news this week that uh, I know is probably a little bit niche, this one, but I thought we'd talk about it because I think it is quite a big milestone. What about um, the first ever web browser that you guys used back in the day? Do you remember what it was with the first ever browser that got you on the web? Mine was uh, Netscape, but uh, I think pre-Navigator. Mine was probably just Internet Explorer, to be honest. I can't remember. I think the first time I ever went on the internet was... uh, and a wait like a, you know when you go on like a camping trip for school yeah um and we went to one uh oh man kingswood i think it was called i can't remember where it was you know hours away you know when i was about 10 and you go yeah. stay for like three nights and i remember we had like a computer session and we got shown what google was and then like the teacher wrote on the board go find these things on google and i think it was just on internet explorer and it was like you had to find a picture of papa smurf <laughs> that sounds so, so quaint these days that yeah <laughs> no, i think that was my first ever experience on the internet kids are born with that knowledge now <laughs> yeah um so yeah i mean yeah to me it was netscape was the first one that i really used you know properly to go online but before that i mean i did kind of mess around with some on the amiga that came on magazine cover cds you know kind of doing it offline um, before I was connected, which well, was I it, wasn't there a mosaic version for the Amiga as well? Yeah, there was yeah. called a mosaic. Um, I never used that, but I remember reading about it in magazines. I've got a feeling that was the first one that came out on the Amiga. Yeah, because Netscape was also mosaic Netscape. Like, yeah, there was all, all lots of different versions. Yeah, and the Amiga had, uh, you know, I think it had three main web browsers back then. There's one called AWeb, I remember. Um, there's one called Voyager, and there's another one called uh, iBrowse, which um, has kind of got the title now of being the champion of the classic Amiga browsers I because... totally forgot about Voyager. <laughs> Void, I used to like Voyager back in the day. I mean, that was quite a, a fully featured web browser for the Amiga. That must have been about 97, 98 that I used that. Um, iBrowse always tended to be the one that most people kind of went to though because it was the most fully featured and um, it had a bit of a development break I remember them developing eyebrows until around 2002 and then they're just completely I've got a feeling a new team took it over eventually but you couldn't buy it they didn't do any new releases for about 10 years but recently in the last kind of five six years or so there's a new development team have took over it and they've just been full steam ahead I think there's been about four or five updates to it this year alone uh, including a major revision number now uh i've been trying to find out you know the exact release dates in the history log um from what i've seen version 2.0 came out in 1997 
but version 3.0 has just landed this week. <laughs> so that is quite a gap between major releases. For sure. And uh, it's, it's, it's tough because, um, you know, there's lots of like niche operating systems yeah. still that have their own uh, releases. But um, I, th- I think the reason you're focused on this one is um, because it's still being updated. Like there's two two worlds in the Amiga. There's the classic and there's the, um, you know, next generation ones. And I use the next generation and uh, there's Wayfarer, which is on Morphos that has support for CSS and all of these modern things. Now, Eyebrows has just got an experimental support for Flash, which is a, yeah. a, a format that is already kind of dead. And uh, you know, last night, it'll be real audio soon. They'll bake it now. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's incredibly hard to kind of get these yeah. things going on there. 68k amigas and um i remember there's one called netsurf as well which is like an open source browser that was ported onto lots of different platforms and that had support for css um cascading style sheets but it it was really really hard on the resources it wasn't that well developed and i think it was still in beta so um well, I've used that on, that's on Risk OS, I've used NetSurf, which kind yeah. of runs quite well on the Raspberry Pi. And I mean, you're right, there are lots of different kind of niche browsers for alternative operating systems and abandoned operating systems. You've got stuff like uh, 104 Fox uh, yes, for yeah, the yeah, classic for the Power. PowerPC Max, which uh, development stopped on that in 2021, but a new team have taken it over now and it's called Interweb. And you've got um, Classzilla as well on Mac OS 9. There's that MyPal, which is a uh, up-to-date web <laughs> browser for Windows XP. Yeah, and, development as well. and it's interesting because there's stuff like the SSL that needs to be updated uh, for, the, for the connections because as all this time's gone on, you know, security's got better on the internet and uh, this fixes that, which is pretty amazing that you can, you know, pick up these old machines and still still browse. I think there was one point where, you know, people were making sites for the old school browsers yeah. and then making ones for the modern ones as well. Well, that is one thing about this um, this eyebrows browser on the Amiga, which, as you said, then it can connect to pretty much you know all modern websites. They might not all look right on it because, like you said, that CSS um, functionality is not in there yet. Although it is apparently in in the works. We'll see also, it. JavaScript as well. JavaScript's <laughs> in there. Yeah, JavaScript one point six is in there. But but it would run really badly. Yeah, you know? it does. Yeah. I mean, I generally turn that off on my like Amiga twelve hundred because otherwise you're waiting like a minute for a page to open with JavaScript. Um, but I remember one thing that um, iBrowz did back in the day. It was the first ever web browser that I used that had tabbed web browsing in there. Ooh. So, you know, rather than opening a new window, you have, you know, like now in Chrome, you have the the tabs with all the different sites in next to each other. I remember iBrowz doing that back in like 98, 99. So it was very early to that. And actually, you know, for if a lot of people are like, you know, why on earth would you want to surf the web? on an Amiga, but there are definitely legitimate uses for it to go onto basically, you know, game download websites directly and download games to your machine and Aminet to get public domain software. So I think in terms of doing stuff like that, it is quite useful. Now, I've got to say that the pricing of it, I've seen some people kind of complaining about. There is a sale on at the moment where you can get 30% off the price, but I've got a feeling if you buy it um, full of, if you haven't got basically a previous license, it works out around $60. Well, that is expensive. It is, but then I, I, I think, you know, I've basically, I use this web browser for free for like, you know. Yeah, but years, paying but... for a browser, I, I know it's updated and stuff, but that yeah. was a model that was gone with, with Netscape, actually, yeah. yeah. But if you did pay for it, cause, I mean, I, I registered version 2.5 about, you know, six, seven years ago, and basically this is a free upgrade if you've already got that. 
Oh, that's good. Full yeah. version. So, yeah. I mean, if you have basically, if you've paid for it once, you know, like legacy seems like, users. Yeah, it's, it's a yeah, lifetime yeah. kind of license. It feels like, um, but I just think you know, it is awesome to see people still developing browsers for abandoned machines that you know the rest of the world would assume are kind of long. Yeah, I love behind. it. Like I've yeah. I've seen you know older machines that people have had, and they're suddenly like, oh, there's a browser on the homebrew yeah, store, well. or there's it's, it just it kind of opens up the world a little bit more. Yeah, and I mean, if, if you don't want to pay for it, there is a free 30-minute version that you can use. So you can just download that and it will work. You know, if you just want to jump on and get stuff, which I imagine will probably be enough for most people. So uh, yeah, nice to see the eyebrows team jumping to a new major revision, version 3.0, uh, landed this week. So I'll link that up if you want to check it out in the show notes. I think those guys are all, you know, quite into board games, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> have you been to a board game cafe, Joe? I have. Uh, for a few, yeah, I have a few times um, for friends' birthdays and stuff and you know, Christmas time, obviously, you know, around the corner. Uh, a bit of a family tradition. Our family, we always buy a new a new board game at Christmas and drunkenly try to play it in the evening. And sometimes it ends up... <laughs> argue about argument. the rules. <laughs> yeah, argue about the rules or, you know, kick off at each other and stuff. But uh, this one might grab my attention a little bit more than, uh, you know, a, a new version of Cluedo. This is a Sonic Roll that mm. is coming out in... Uh, unfortunately, coming out in January 2024. So it is going to be missing that Christmas window. Um, but this is coming from a board game company called Kess Entertainment. Um, and they've not released too much about what the game is going to be other than some images. Um, but the reason this is quite interesting is because of it's all the artwork and the game is all based on 90s Sonic, like original Sonic. Mm, Mega Drive um, Sonic. Yeah, Mega Drive Sonic, which is really cool because obviously most, you know, Sonic is huge. Sonic is, you know, he's, he's massive these days because of the film and stuff and a lot of the TV shows. Um, and obviously some of the, you know, newer games have been quite praised. Um, but yeah, this is uh, the the box artwork for it is, is kind of based on Sonic 3 imagery. Um, and then from what we can see from the board game, um, from the board and the pieces, uh, it looks quite complicated. There's a lot of dice and <laughs> counters yeah. and Chaos Emeralds and stuff like that, but it's all like based on levels from the original three Sonic games, you know, Green Hill Zone's on there, um, and you can you can see all the uh, the bonus stage from uh, Sonic 3 with the blue and red balls, um, which is really interesting. But all they've said so far is it's going to be a four-player game where you can play cooperatively and you take control of Sonic, Knuckles, Tails, or Amy, and you have to take down Dr. Uh, Eggman, uh, which still gives me quivers. It's Dr. Robotnik. <laughs> <laughs> they they look down. like uh, they've done some before, though. So they've got Mega Man Adventures and they've also yeah. got uh, Contra the Board Game. Oh, that's uh, cool. I didn't which know that looks interesting, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's cool to see this, you know, from a, a big kind of like big publisher. Um, I know there was a Resident Evil board game that I really want to play, but it's, it's expensive. It's like 50, 60 quid. Um, so I've not had a chance to play this. But yeah, this looks pretty interesting and uh, hopefully not too complicated, especially with it being Sonic. And I'm sure some children would love to have a play of this. Uh, yeah, I've just spotted it, it does say 14 plus on it, actually. So it might be a bit complicated for me. Out, out of your uh, brain power, Joe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember me and me and Joe and uh, our, our wives having a, a Monopoly session till about four o'clock in the morning once, didn't we? And then we had to give up. 
like, this is going to go on. Many, many a times where yeah. we played, we had board game nights. You know what? You've just flooded memories back from well, that's the test of ago. friendship. Monopoly yeah. Is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. If you don't end up killing each other, at it's the usually end. the girls who want to keep it going. Yeah. Uh, but this to me looks like, I mean, you mentioned board game cafes. It looks like the kind of game that would be very at home yeah. in a place like that. Um, and I've got a feeling, I mean, obviously, I've noticed that the price of board games does seem to be kind of shooting up quite a lot you know, whenever I see them new. Um, I've got a feeling this doesn't look like it's going to be cheap because there's quite a lot no, in there. No, probably not, um, no. But um, yeah, experiencing it at a board game cafe could be the way to do it. But hopefully not too long to wait and expecting that in uh, January next year, so in a couple of months. So if you want to check out the uh, pictures of that so far, I will put those in the show notes as well. I think we need a jingle for... Uh, Boomer shooter of the week, don't we? Because it's a bit of a get Ravi to sing one. Two weeks on uh, the trot. Yeah, three, I think this might be now. Oh, is it? Oh, my um, days. But this one is a little bit different because, you know, obviously boomer shooters, we've, we've mentioned this, we've kind of explained what they are every time. Basically, old school FPS games, you know, kind of nice. Yeah, I, I, I think the jingle should be um, me raging at the name boomer shooter. Boomer shooter. There you go. <laughs> there you go. I'll just sample that. That's for next week. Um, but this one is a bit different to the others because normally, I mean, the ones we've covered recently have been basically games for modern PCs that are designed with that retro fps aesthetic whereas mm. this one is something that's been uh, it's actually been around for a while but it's finally getting a physical release which is the big news and this is a game that i'm not sure we've covered this one before actually it's called biofury and they're saying this is a, a doom inspired fps for the 3do it reminds me of a, a mix of doom with a <laughs> checks quest <laughs> right <laughs> if you guys know that one um from pc around the same time which was a uh doom you know a doom game a boomer shooter based yep. on serial uh <laughs> in america but yeah this is getting a i didn't realize this was a game that had already been around but yeah it's getting a physical release to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the 3do um which is wow cool. yeah. yeah 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 it's crazy yeah that's crazy and uh there's a couple of versions of this available which do look you know really stunning limited to 100 copies is the nice big tall box version um, like those original 3DO? Like the original 3DOs, yeah. The uh, ones that don't fit new shelves. Yeah, they're probably already sold out to be honest. But that was only I say only that was uh I think that was fifty dollars. That one was right. And then there is the standard version, which just comes in you know a standard kind of CD jewel case uh, for thirty dollars. And they are NTSC versions. I'm not too sure what. Uh, region locking was like they've on the got 3DO. a free uh, digital version as well that you can oh, that's excellent. off off GitHub and you know just try it out like a kind you of turn it into a disc yourself because <laughs> yeah, the 3DO's got go. no copy there protection. You yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you're right, that is one thing they're saying. This is NTSC only, um, mm. which if you've got you know uh, most TVs can do NTSC and PAL just fine these days. It's only if you kind of hook it up to uh, uh, you know an old school kind of CRT, I guess you know television. Do, Even my, do, you, know, do you have a 3DO done? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I've, uh, I had two at one stage. Um, oh, jeez. Yeah, I've still got my uh, I've, my 3D. I got quite cheap. I got it from uh, you guys. Remember a shop in Nottingham called Playtime yeah. that we used to have. That was a great retro gaming store. I got it in around 2011 for 40 pounds with two controllers. Bargain. Um, which they go for a lot more than that now. But um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see that the 3D. I actually just recently celebrated, like I said, Joe, the 30th birthday, um, October 4th, 93. It came out in North America. Over here, it came out on uh, June the 11th, 1994. So uh, next summer, it'll be 30 years old here. It's crazy, though, because I do remember reading a lot of hype around the 3DO when it came out, uh, but never, I don't ever remember seeing one in person back then or definitely didn't know anyone that had one. 
Well, what do you think about these graphics? Because, you know, in the screenshots that I'm seeing, they're they're missing the floor in the roof. Well, to me, that's one thing, yeah. It's it's textured, but it's it's kind of got this kind of pre-rendered stop-motion kind of, uh, you know, like when they did Donkey Kong on, um, on the SNES kind of style. Well, I will. There's a video as well that you can watch that I'll I'll put in the show notes too. Um, a lot of articles I've seen about this are calling it Doom inspired, but to me it looks very much Wolfenstein 3D. Not yeah, Doom. with those with those wall textures, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the brickwork. Yeah, so I mean, it looks much more kind of a you know a reskinned version of Wolfenstein, um, but obviously you know I imagine there's a bit more to it than that. But you have got stuff like you know zombies in there as well, you know lots of different weapons, you know exploding barrels that kind of thing too. But it's definitely more in the vein of something like Wolfenstein as opposed to Doom, I'd say. Um, but the thing about it is, I mean, it, FPS games have always kind of been a, a thing on the, the 3DO that people have wanted it to do better, because obviously it's got that, you know, infamously bad Doom port that Rebecca Heinemann had to do in like a you know a couple of weeks back in the day. So um, I, I think in terms of getting, you know, a, a good FPS, a new FPS game on the 3DO, it's definitely going to be something that that community will appreciate. Uh, and the fact that they're giving it away for free on GitHub, and um, there's 12 levels that you can play through. So, uh, and you know, an actual story that unfolds as you go yeah, on. Yeah, I, I like that kind of try before you buy. Yeah. And then if you want that physical, that's going to be uh, shipped on January 27th as well. So, uh, yeah, I, I do think it looks pretty cool. You know, I've got to say, I've obviously seen, you know, more advanced FPS games, but I think the 3DO does seem to be a platform that doesn't get a lot of love. And this team that are behind it, I mean, there is, a, if you check out their YouTube channel, this is a, a, a team called Retro Love Letter. It might only be one guy actually working on these, but he's actually ported a few other titles to the 3DO recently as well. And he's currently working on a version of Tempest for the 3DO, which oh, cool. looks, it basically looks very, very similar to Tempest 2000 on the Jaguar. Um, in terms of, you know, those Jeff Minter style, you know, neon graphics and explosions and all that. So, yeah, I mean, it looks like in terms of homebrew 3DO developers, this retro love letter studio does seem to be one to keep an eye on. And the fact that, you know, he uploads all the games for free on GitHub for people to try out as he progresses with them, I think is very cool. So uh, nice to see the 3DO getting a bit of love. Might be time to get mine set up over Christmas and try a few of these out. So if you want to check that out, I'll link that up. And of course, everything else we talk about in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, before we chat to this week's special guest, going inside the world of Interplay, games like Fallout, Clay Fighter, Star Trek, and lots more as well, with Doug Rappaport. He's coming up in just a moment. Before we do that, let's take a moment to give a massive thank you to our longest-running sponsor, and this is our wonderful mates at Bitmap Books. You guys started Christmas shopping yet? I have. I have indeed. until the last minute. (laughs) (laughs) I have. I've, I've got most of my daughter's stuff. And uh, I've bought some bits for my wife. You know what? I can say it because she never listens. I've bought some sandals, some lip balm sets, uh, might buy some boots, but yeah. <laughs> does she write you a list? Uh, yeah, she does actually. She yeah. does, to be fair. And uh, you know <laughs> what? We're so I romantic, do, aren't we? We are very romantic. I might do her a list and I might put some bitmap books on there. Ah, there you go. Well, that's a thing. <laughs> Look at that. Well, that is a great link, Joe. Because that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, I don't know if you're the same as me. My missus always says to me, well, write me a list what you want. I'm like, oh, I never know what to put on. You know, yeah. Normally, if you want stuff during the year, you buy it. But this is a really good option. So if you're thinking of a good present for yourself, if your friends and family are asking you, uh, it's incredible book from mm. Bitmap Books, our sponsor. It came out a couple of months ago, and it's one of the best I've seen from them yet. It's called The Art of the Box, and it is massive. Listen. Like all their books, absolutely huge. Um, you definitely get value for money with Bitmap Books. And this is a celebration 
a video game box art. Now, it goes from the pretty much the Atari days, right, you know, from the late 70s, right up until the modern day, features indie and AAA releases as well. And one thing we always know about Bitmap books is their print quality and how the colours and the inks just leap off the page, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. And what I also love about them as well is they're never too text heavy. They give you just enough about the game, you know, some of the details about the game, and just enough to kind of leave that lasting impression for you to be like, you know what, that looks fantastic. I'm going to go check it out. Or something that you, you know, used to play as a child and just gives you that nostalgia and reminiscence of it as well. And it's just enough for somebody like myself. And that's the thing about, you know, if you're talking about box art for games as well, it's something that we is not as important anymore, you know, now that we kind of buy our games based on, you know, YouTube playthroughs and that kind of thing. But back in the day when you walked into, you know, like Electronics Boutique or Game Station or something like that, the box art of a video game, it could make or break it, couldn't it, a sale? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if if, uh, Golden Axe... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> didn't jump off the page, you know, with the man and his little his little farm and stuff like that. You know, it, it meant so much like back then. Like, and these companies, they would, they would hire these like fantastic artists to paint these huge pictures. And, you know, it would, it really had to sell it to you back then. Yeah. And I mean, All this- those uh, black psychosis boxes, I used to remember those. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. This is a real celebration of, you know, those days. So 464 full-colour pages presented in this gorgeous hardback book. You can hear it was really, really tough. Interviews and features with 26 video game box artists. Features over 350 artworks officially supplied as well. And it's a global book as well. So you've got, you know, artists from Europe, America, Japan, as well as all featured in here. So if you want a little trip back to those days when the art of the box was so important, you can check that out. And of course, support our sponsors. Really means a lot to us and helps the podcast out and they're wonderful guys over at bitmap books so maybe treat yourself for christmas this year check out the art of the box and the rest of their collection at bitmapbooks.com so with it being the final weekend of the month that does mean coming up on sunday it is going to be patrons hangout weekend i'm going to be rushing back from my uh, my village christmas light switch on so i'll be feeling all festive on Sunday evening, hopefully not uh, too much mulled wine beforehand, but it has been known on that. Is it, is it going to be some like cheesy person turning the lights on? Maybe it's usually work. Dan. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not Dane Bowers or someone. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, we did have Santa one year. The real Santa came along a couple of years ago. So, you know, Santa. Not convinced yeah, me. The, the real Santa, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is going to be a really good one. Actually, the last patrons hangout that we do before the Christmas one. So, uh, what is the Patrons Hangout, Joe, for people that haven't been on it before? Oh, the Patrons Give Hangout. Give us the it's sizzle. Like, it's a virtual pub around the table. Um, so we do it on the usually on the last Sunday of the month. And anybody who is a patron at any level is welcome. And we send a link out to everybody. And you can come on. And we literally just have, we just hang out and have a chat. It's usually mm-hmm. about, what, 20 to 30 people on there, which is just amazing. And, uh, you know, we've built a real community on there. And, you know, people keep coming back to it. We've been doing it, what, three years now? Yeah. Something like that. And, you know, I've said it before. I'll always say this. I've made some genuine friends on there. People who I've now met in person, you know, in real life. People who have travelled, you know, across countries and stuff like that, you know, for other events, but when we've met up at them. And it's been absolutely fantastic. And this is all kind of built from, you know, not just the podcast, but the fans of the podcast have built this by coming on to the patrons hangout. And, you know, we don't just sit there and talk about us and talk about, the po- the podcast we we very we don't really talk about the podcast we talk no. about anything you know that's been what we've all been playing what we've been collecting 
Uh, we quite often talk about films, just technology. We sometimes we help each other out, like, oh, can anybody recommend this or tell me about this? We look uh, at uh, Gareth building his uh, retro layer. Stuff yeah, like that. exactly. Yeah. You know, and you know, I'll usually end up the joke is I usually end up spending a bit of money on something retro because uh, <laughs> somebody shows <laughs> off something awesome or jogs my memory. But yeah, man, we do it for about two hours, eight till ten UK time. And uh, yeah, it's just really fun to chill out, have a beer and just, you know, chat about stuff, you know, what we've been up to for the last month, really. And like you said, we, we've got a great group of regulars on there, but we're always very welcoming to new people as well. We get new people coming all the time. So, you know, don't feel like it's just kind of a, you know, a click. Um, we always love welcoming in new members. And if you want to show us your, 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 your den at home, your, you know, your setup, your battle station, whatever you want to call it, that's always awesome as well. So we'd love to see you there if you want to join us for this weekend's Hangout. A very good time to sign up to our patron right now. Uh, make sure we can keep this podcast going into 2024 and beyond. And of course, uh, we give you some extra perks as well. We try and get the podcast to patrons a bit early. Uh, you get it ad free as well and we're about to do an extra 10-15 minutes of news stories just for our patrons in a second so a very good time to sign up all the details to join us on patreon are at the retrohour.com so thank you so much for checking out the news this week there will be more on next friday's podcast and of course next we're going to go in depth into companies like interplay treyarch as well ea konami and they're talking about games like the fallout series clay fighter lots more as well with our very special guest ravi talks to doug rapaport next on the retro hour podcast Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So you're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and we're here today with Doug Rappaport. And, you know, Doug's worked in some absolutely amazing companies, Interplay, Mattel, EA and uh, Konomi as well. And we're going to talk about, you know, what it's like editing audio, but also voice in video games back in the days. And uh, first, we've got a question that we ask all of our kind of podcast guests. And that's what was your first experience of video games that... The first game you played or remembered? Oh, the first game I played had to be like Pong, um, which I guess was the first video game period, but as far as I remember. Um, But I I played a lot of uh, Adventure, uh, you know, that old... um, Oh, classic, yeah. Yeah, I really love that. Um, And uh, Berserk. um, So you you had an Atari at home, I guess? yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Oh, nice. And uh, were, there, were there any kind of game soundtracks that inspired you back then, even though it was a lot of uh, blips and bloops? As far as, yeah, as far as music, I can't really remember anything that sticks out from back in the day. But um, movies, yes, of course, but not with the, the video games. But uh, yeah, um, playing a lot of Atari 
Atari games and um, Space Invaders, of course, was another one. Asteroids, all the classic ones, really. But I really well, adventure a lot. Oh, yeah. Adventure was great. And uh, you were a classically trained violinist and uh, composer as well. That must right, have uh, right. taken a lot of work. And was this the kind of first focus of your uh, career? Yeah, absolutely. I started playing violin at the age of nine and um, immediately had some aptitude for it. So um, much of my childhood was spent studying at conservatories and practicing, you know, five to eight hours a day. Sort of took my childhood away a little bit because I was practicing so much. And uh, in junior high and high school, I uh, went to school just half a day so I could practice the other half of the day. I had a special schedule. So it was very intense childhood. And it was all, all very classical focus. So you had that kind of uh, right. inspiration from... Um you know, some of the, some of the greats. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you also got into composition as well. Um, that must've been a step up in, uh, you know, uh, learning with music and, and kind of notation and stuff. Yeah. My initial draw into, um, composing was I was really interested in film and TV scoring, which is what eventually got me into video games later on. But, um, I was really interested in being a film composer. Um, so I listened to all the great film scores, you know, the uh, John Williams and uh, James Newton Howard and Hans Zimmer and Mark Kamen and all the old uh, Mark Isham, Albert Bernstein, all the great uh, film composers. Oh, of course, uh, can't forget um, John Barry. That was, he was a big favorite of mine as well. And th- did this lead you to uh, using any kind of digital audio editors or or software or interfaces? Yeah, uh, I, had my, I had a home studio with like an old Roland 1080 and um, a Yamaha, I forget what it was, the keyboard controller, but I think it was the Yamaha. Oh no, it's a Korg. I forget which one. And I had uh, Pro Tools, of course, and uh, I used mainly for composition, I used either um, Logic Audio or uh, Digital Composer. Yeah, I, I, I remember Logic. That was a really yeah, Logic uh, powerful... Logic main one I used. Yeah, really powerful piece of software that was. And uh, I, I guess you were using like MIDI interfaces. Then. Yeah, yeah. Digital Performer, that's the other one. Yeah, Digital Performer and Logic Audio. Digital Performer I mainly use at work most of the time. And then uh, like at Mattel. Uh, and then uh, Logic Audio was what I used at home. And I did an album with a, a guy I went to school with, a, a Progressive rock album, and we used Logic Audio for the whole. We recorded the whole album on Logic, except for the drums, which we recorded live. So it was did, very, very robust program. Did you have uh, any kind of studio experience then? And um, you know, uh, was it mainly making a home studio setting up, or did you ever go into any professional spaces? Uh, both. I used the home studio for you know to lay out the tracks and to get sort of like a rough demo of it. We recorded like vocals and guitar and violin and bass right into Logic and uh, through the home studios. And then we went to the recording studio to record the drums and to mix and master. So how did this lead to the uh, video game world? Yeah, so in the early 90s, I got accepted into the USC film and TV scoring program in LA. Um, It's a very small program. We usually have about 10 to 12 people only each year. And uh, I got accepted to it. So I immediately, I had already sort of quit violin by then. So I meet, um, I was, this was like the, the news of my life to get accepted to it. So I moved to LA and I did the program 
it's a one-year graduate levels certificate program. And uh, one of the guys I met in the program, uh, who I did the Apple with later, when I was looking after we graduated, while I was looking for film and TV jobs, he immediately went into uh, pretty quickly went into uh, video games instead. Um, he got a job at Interplay as sort of like a music supervisor. And uh, so I was looking for film and TV jobs and I had them here and there, but they, you know, they didn't really pay the bills. So I was sort of suffering a little bit in terms of paying my rent and everything. And uh, he's like, why don't you come work at Interplay and be a dialogue editor and write music and do sound effects. And, um, you know, you'll have a steady salary. You won't have to worry jumping from one job to another and how it, which is what I was doing, like I said. So, uh, I was like, yeah, sure. So I thought I was going to be going into uh, Interplay just like for a year or two and then going back to film and TV. But uh, I ended up staying in the, in the video industry for 20 years. So 20 years later, I was in Paris uh, working at a cloud gaming company as the vice president. And I was like, God, where do the years go? It was 20 years ago I was at Interplay. And um, How did that happen? <laughs> that, that happened. It was supposed to be like a temporary job, um, like a bridge job. But um you know, definitely pay the bills and it was a lot of fun to, you know, a lot of, obviously you probably heard it's a lot of hours, very intense. Yeah. Uh, can be a lot of overtime. One company I worked at, actually, I won't mention the name of it. The overtime was so bad, the crunch time and stuff that uh, someone must have mentioned to the management that he didn't have time to do his laundry. And so rather than solve the problem of the overtime, the company told us to bring our laundry in and they would do our laundry. So they did our laundry while we were crunching. <laughs> The end of wow. the end of the video game development. So that's I when, can imagine it's uh, yeah. even worse nowadays. Yeah, as well. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's when I knew that, like, wow, this is not right. You know, somebody's doing our laundry. There's something wrong here with the work-life balance. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I was wondering, like, were you aware of how much video game music had progressed then? Because it was just as CD-ROM had hit, and you know these giant FMV games were coming out that right. some of them had huge budgets. Right. Yeah, definitely. Like when I started at Interplay in the in the mid-90s, we were using film and TV composers. Some of it was done in-house, but a lot of the bigger, bigger stuff like Star Trek, which I did there, Star Trek 4, I think, in Starfleet Academy. Uh, we used Ron Jones, who was from, you know, he did the Star Trek TV show. Um, so we were able to get him to do the video game. And so we actually had live music that we recorded with an orchestra and we edited and Pro Tools put into the games. So we, you know, we were really doing a lot of, you know, with the bigger titles, like I mentioned, we were doing real big scores. Um, well, yeah, I was going to ask about that because like capturing voices for games, uh, a lot of the early ones were uh, the ones that you worked on were quite basic and then obviously the dialogue improved. Um, what equipment were you using initially and would you remotely capture the voices or would people come into the studio and record? Um, both. With some remote work, there was a studio at Interplay. You know, our studios, we had our, we, you know, we had our own equipment, you know, our offices. So we, we brought some people in and then obviously for the bigger titles, we went to recording studios and recorded the video there where, you know, where we were working with name talent like Ron Perlman or William Shatner or whoever. Uh, we we went to an LA recording studio to record. Well, one of the first titles you worked on was a uh, Max uh, Mechanized Assault and Exploration, um, which was one of these kind of strategy games. And uh, I remember one of the first ones I heard was uh, Command and Conquer that had, you know, um, your, your base has been completed. <laughs> these kind of uh, announcement voices. Uh, 
what was what was the approach to editing those and how did you make it so it wasn't uh, you know very repetitive yeah so for max and another one we did around the same time shattered steel we used we did a lot of cockpit voices and we recorded ourselves basically doing you know pilot uh, pilot dialogue uh, and then we you know we eq'd them to make them seem like they were you know coming through um, a walkie-talkie or you know something like that and it made it really uh, realistic in terms of once we put that into the game and you know we could hear these pilots talking and you know mayday mayday and all the, all the other stuff that you know they said was really effective and uh those titles as well you know um they kind of came on one cd rom obviously later on it expanded but what was the kind of compression like and the quality? Because I guess you were aiming for, you know, people with just regular PC speakers at home or headphones. Yeah, so we we mixed it for different speakers. You know, mixed it for PC speakers, obviously, where, like you said, a lot of people would be listening to it. And then we mixed it for, you know, more professional speakers as well. So mastered it, rather. So we really took that into consideration with, you know, what, you know, with how the music and sound effects and voiceover would be downsampled. So we mixed it and mastered it with that in mind. So you mentioned Starfleet Academy earlier, and uh, that must have been a real step up and a huge undertaking because, uh, you know, it had five CDs worth of space that needed filling. Yeah, um, it had uh, interactive music. So we actually created like a dialogue, sort of, sort of like a dialogue tree, but for the music, so that um, we had in the tree, in this music tree, so to speak, um, we could switch from the battle battle music to success music to death music to the next level, whatever it was, but it was interactive. So it wasn't just like playing one track for a, a major part of the game and then switching to another track. We had the ability to like really make a, a like I said, like a dialogue tree, so to speak, and switch the music from, from one emotion or one level the next at the drop of a dime. So it was, it was very, it was a lot of work to get that, to get that right. Cause there was so many possibilities where the music could go, but it was, it turned out to be worth the, the time. Cause it was really effective. I thought. And, and stuff like that is kind of standard in games now, but back then, you know, implementing uh, kind of incidental music and, and music that would change is a, a really kind of innovative thing to do. I'm sure it's much different today and much more, much easier, but we we did it, you know, quote unquote, by hand back in the day. So, and a lot of the footage was uh, uh, with the original cast, and and the original cast recorded it. Did you did you get to meet any of them? And was there like a a lot of excitement having the uh, Star Trek crew kind of involved with the game? I didn't get to meet any of them personally, um, but I cut a lot of their dialogue, edited a lot of the dialogue. But um, some of the guys I worked with, you know, got to meet, you know, William Shatner and. You know, some of the cats, and you probably know about the famous William Shatner recording yeah. legend or whatever. Well, not really a legend. I can say it was true what happened when I heard it. It was on the tape. Uh, uh, did you want to quickly explain the uh, Shatner incident for the listeners? That would be good. Uh, yeah, sure. So was, one of my colleagues was directing uh, Shatner, and uh, they asked him to uh, pronounce, I forget what the word was, something differently, which is normal process to, you know, take multiple takes and have something pronounced a different way or read a different way. Um, so director, the voiceover director just asked him to pronounce a word a different way. And uh, he got really mad and he said, don't tell me how to do my job. And that became sort of, uh, I think the recording got out somehow. 
you know, like if it was today, it would be like, uh, you know, a GIF or a, yeah, you know. Like a viral TikTok or something. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but back in the day, it somehow leaked and it, and it, it went all over the place and people would hear the recording of Shatter saying, don't tell me how to do my job. And uh, it became sort of folklore, you know, as to whether whether it actually happened or not. But I've, I've, obviously it did. We had the recording and everything like that. But it was just, I mean, I'm sure he was had good intentions. He was just frustrated with, um, you know, voiceover recording can be tedious and and long and stuff like that. So we regretted that the, the recording got out. But uh, it, it, it just became very... Um, Legendary that uh, that incident. This is William Shatner, and I would like to invite you to take a journey with me into the 21st century. So take the next few minutes and listen very closely. You'll be amazed at what you hear. Okay. Um, can there be a little more uh, excitement in the beginning? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay. All right. It sounded like really laid, you know, really super laid back. Well, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm saying, uh, okay, I'll, I'll try and do that. Let's do take two. <laughs> this is William Shatner, and I would like to invite you to take a journey with me into the 21st century. So take the next few minutes and listen very closely. Um, well, uh, speak up. Uh, uh, and, and maybe you better do it, do it the way you hear it. Tell me, do it for me. No, I mean, just uh, go ahead. Uh, this is William Shatner, and I would like to invite you to take a journey with me into the 21st century. So take the next few minutes and listen very closely. You'll be amazed at what you hear. Is that the way you'd like me to do it? Okay, ready. This is William Shatner, and I would like to invite you to take a journey with me into the 21st century. So take the next few minutes and listen very closely. You'll be amazed at what you hear. Okay, so is, did, I think that came pretty close. Are you making fun of me? Uh, no, I'm doing... No, no, I was... I believe that you asked that was about the way you did it. I wasn't jesting. Okay. I, I'm sorry. I don't know. Maybe. No, no, I, I, I insist. Now, what I want you to do is on... Pay, is that satisfactory to you? No, because if your mouth were open, you'd have popped some pills in them. So, do the next paragraph for me, uh, page two. Well, I, I don't know. I, I really don't want to, because I think you, you actually have a better, much better feeling. No, I don't think I do. I would like to hear you read the second paragraph, so I can do it that way. You know, I really, you know, now that I looked at the different things you did, I really like the first one. No, I like it better the way you did. Oh, geez. I Really, I mean it. Please read, play, uh, so I can get an idea of what you want. No, no, I'm going to do it the way you, you think it should go. No, I am going to do it the way you're reading it. Okay? I know you're here to see that I do it the way the company wants it, so I'm going to do it the way you read it. Well, but I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want you to do it. But you're telling me how you want me to do it. Well, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I am going to do it your way. No, there's no apology necessary. You, you know what you want. You know what you want. No, I don't. I mean, I, really... I mean, you come in here and you don't know what you want? Well, I come in here because I know you're a professional, I mean, and, and you know how to do it, and I'm sorry I even said anything. No, I am going to do it the way you want, every paragraph. And you'll send it back to town, and you'll see whether, I hope it's, it will please everybody else. As long as I'm pleasing you, that's all that matters. 
Mr. Shonda, would you please, you know, I, I don't feel right about doing it, Tap, I really well, no, you felt you wanted something done on the first paragraph. I'm trying to do what you want. Okay, let's lay down the second paragraph. Because it was it was done in film as well, I guess there wasn't that many syncing issues uh, with the video and stuff. It was just a compression of the quality uh, that was needed to go on on the PC. And uh, there's stuff like, what were the considerations like, you know, echo when you're in a certain room and in the scenes and uh, stuff like background noises that were needed? And how did the team work together on that? Uh, well, we put it all together mostly in, in Pro Tools. And we had the ability to, like, one of the things I did when I was editing a voiceover was take the lip clicks out, uh, like lip smacks. You know, some are very easy to hear and others are more subtle. Um, that was my interview, actually, when I interviewed with Interplay, was they played some dialogue for me with and without the lip smacks. And I had to identify when I heard them to show that I had an ear and could hear it. And because uh, that's obviously a big part of back in the day, at least, uh, voice editing, making sure the dialogue was really clean. And then, you know, we uh, we mixed and mastered it, you know, with all the typical plugins of uh, in Pro Tools and we mixed and mastered it depending upon what the, you know, sample rate was going to be for that, you know, for that game and put in all the different effects that we needed to, like I mentioned for like, you know, Max or Shattered Steel, you know, sort of the phone booths, phone booths, reverb or lack thereof. And uh, just to make, you know, we really did a lot of voice design to, to make sure, especially in some of the big games like Fallout, um, you know, really doing design work, you know, really creative design work and, with just not only the sound design, but with the, the voiceover as well. Well, uh, I was going to say Fallout was kind of a huge step up in, a, say, like the multimedia experience. You know, before it felt like a film with interactive elements. Um, but, uh, you know, Fallout kind of brought everything together. What was your reaction when you first heard about this title? Oh, I was super excited. It was a lot different than doing some of the other, the older games like Dragon Dice or Norse by Northwest, and it was real. It was like much more epic, and uh, you know the story was bigger, the cast was bigger, just the ambition itself was bigger. So, you know, once once we started working on, I remember a game I worked on called Normality. Uh, oh, that is such a good title as well, Normality. Yeah. That was a very very innovative one. Exactly uh, too. Exactly, yeah. and that was one of the first ones I did that was very interactive. It was like doing a movie here. You know, after doing Normality and then and Fallout and Fallout 2, and we went from some basic stuff to much more technical and advanced uh, sound design. Well, I think, um, you know, uh, Ink Spots maybe as the kind of theme tune. Um, w- when you first heard they were going to use that and have this kind of nostalgic 1940s uh, vibe running running throughout it. Um, did that kind of give you a lot of inspiration and, and make you think you could get more into, you know, like the older style of playing, more instrumental sounds? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the story dictated you know, when the story took place or, you know, the, the background of the story really created our sort of sound canvas of what we, what we could do and what we needed to do to create the environments and um, make it, you know, realistic and obviously sound good. And so, you know, yeah, I worked with some of the best sound designers and and mixers back then who, you know, our audio director, he, he became, uh, 
he got into film and TV after that. And but he he had a great ear, and so he would master a lot of the stuff. And uh, he actually mastered our album as well. But uh, he was super talented. He he was very famous in the industry and still is. So we had that level of perfection that we had to hit, you know, by his ears, which you know were miles and miles beyond ours. And uh, so it was a real um, working on stuff and then under him, real, really striving for perfection and getting that perfect sound uh, and these perfect environments for these games. It's it's, it's interesting because you have these kind of legendary producers in music, and then hearing that you know that started to come into video games and now. You know, video game music soundtracks are huge. It's uh, well, yeah, really interesting kind of um, a step up for video games there. Yeah, and getting live, but live, you know, songs by real bands and playing them in into the games. You know, that was definitely, uh, you know, that was really cool too. Not just having scores, but you know, having you know the big songs of the day in in the video game as well. And that obviously, you know, created bigger budgets, like you said. So, yeah, and uh, you were. A sound effects librarian as well so you were kind of picking uh, the sound effects were you ever doing any like folio or, or, or sound effect creation yourself and where did you source the sound effects from um yeah we had different sound effect libraries that we used and then we used that as sound effects that we would then build upon with other you know layering and effects and everything like that to create the uh, the ultimate sound design you know from that so yeah, we didn't just take stuff out of the libraries and put them right in the game. Obviously, we really designed them and used those as uh, as sort of the canvas, and then built on on top of that. And so, I wasn't really involved in Foley or anything like that. Some other people did that, but um, just the the regular, you know, the cutscenes and things like that, where we were doing yeah. playing for, you know, we we did it to the video footage, and you know, really tried to make it as accurate as we could. Um, they also had a lot of like rendered sequences. Uh, 3D sequences with people speaking in them as well. Um, what what was it like lip syncing and kind of implementing that? And did you have to work with the uh, 3D artists quite closely? Oh yeah, absolutely. That was uh, the lip syncing was definitely something that took time to get it right. You know, when it was off, it was very obviously off. So that was something that took a lot of meticulous work and and a lot of time to um, to make sure that the lip syncing was accurate. So. Well, I was um, I was listening to the Fallout Two soundtrack, and uh, that's absolutely amazing as well. And I feel there's a lot of effects in there as well um, that you know put you in in the place, like the, the cable car sounds in San Francisco. W- was it kind of a, a deliberate aim to have more atmospheric soundscapes in uh, Fallout Two? Oh yeah, for those types of games like that, we, we, yeah, that's the perfect word: soundscapes and um, creating the environment and. So not just having individual sound effects or, or voiceover just interdispersed, but really blending into the into the environment and then obviously budding into the world of that video game. And uh, looking at the recent Fallout titles, they've still kind of taken that with them, and you know, it's it's still got that exact same feel really for me. Oh yeah, that's important. I mean, it's, it's just like a, a film. If you're creating a world and um, you have to, you know, it has to, you know, it's not just the visuals, but the the sound, the, the you know, the music, the sound effects, the voiceover, it all has to work, you know, keep people in the game. You know, we don't want something that sounds awful or that sounds wrong. Well, what was the most um, enjoyable part of working on Fallout and the and the soundtracks for you? Just getting 
to edit Ron Perlman's uh, narration. So, you know, so uh, it was just so good. So it was really exciting because voice, you know, voiceover editing can be a little tedious and monotonous and occasionally boring. But when you're editing someone like Ron Perlman for a game like Fallout, it's like, this is super cool. This his voice is so, so just works so, so well. I assume it's sort of like, you know, when they recorded, what's the name for Darth Vader in Star Wars, there's that same great voice that I'm sure excited the sound designers in, in Star Wars, just working with, with him, uh, was the same kind of feeling for me, like working with Ron Perlman on Fallout, that sort of just great, that great sort of bassy voice that's just cool. Yeah. And later on, you ended up kind of working on um, Clay Fighters is one, which is a, a cartridge title for the N64. And uh, I was wondering what the difference was like going from, you know, a game with five CDs for Starfleet Academy to, you know, having to fit everything on a cartridge. Yeah, everything was a learning experience and uh, figuring out what's going to sound good on that platform. Uh, what sounds good on a PC or Mac is obviously different on an N64 or PSX. Or, so we, you know, we really played with um, you know, the downsampling and what, what the final audio was going to sound like to make sure it sounded good on those, all those different platforms. I was wondering what the, what the process of a talent acquisition and um, being a talent director was for video games. Like how, you, how would you recruit people? Oh, so when I was working at Konami, working on Karaoke Revolution, American Idol, that was back in the early days of American Idol when uh, they had the original judges, um, Paula and Simon Cowell and Randy Jackson. And so like when I came to Konami, for instance, they had done an American Idol version with Simon and Randy, but they didn't have Paula, which to me was really weird. I mean, back in the day, I was, I'll admit I was an American Idol fan. Uh, myself, so working on a video game was was really cool. But uh, as a as a fan of American Idol, I thought like you can't have two out of the three judges. That just doesn't seem right, you know, to be authentic to the American Idol audience and what they want to hear. You know, they want it to be as close to TV shows possible, obviously. So uh, one of the things when I started Konami, I I campaigned for and I made it sort of my personal quest was to get Paul Abdul uh, into the game, and I was finally successful. It took a lot of you know, back and forth with, you know, her manager and, you know, really um, working hard to to get her, to acquire her. And then, of course, once we did, I directed her, for instance, in, in the studio. And um, when we're working with big talent like that, uh, it's a great achievement to, to get them for the game, A, number one. And then number two, then working with them and getting the best performance uh, possible from them. You know, just like you're working with any other actor, you want to get a great performance. So, but especially cool, you know, with the name talent and people that were cele- <laughs> excuse me, celebrities and so on and so forth, who, you know, the the target audience would, you know, we're doing it for the target audience. I was so getting them all three judges, for instance, for American Idol was, was a big achievement because we knew that's what the American Idol audience wanted. It must have been, um, yeah, tough to kind of convince people that the video games are kind of as worthy as you know, the TV show or... Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. And yeah, like, getting them on like board. And everything in the game. And so it's really, it was the final products of those things were really cool. Well, uh, another one with the uh, original casting as well was um, you, you got involved with uh, Treyarch and um, Spider-Man was an absolutely huge task. Yeah, it's uh, a yeah. 
Yeah, and you, you actually had the cast from the film doing right. the voiceovers as well. So, yeah. That that must have been absolutely amazing. Oh, totally. It's throughout my career it's always been exciting to work with uh you know, the real cast from from things. And I remember I directed uh Tobin Bell from Saw for the Saw video game. Uh yeah, from the horror franchise. And he was really cool too. And it's like um you see someone in a movie like that and he's so evil and stuff like that. And, but you meet him in person and they're the nicest people and such, such a great uh, person to work with. And uh, so over the years, you really find, you know, you have your, your favorites of people working with. And uh, uh, he, he was wonderful. He was really cool to work with. I think, uh, you know, with Spider-Man, with uh, Tobey Maguire and Willem Dafoe, you know, everybody has their own personality and sometimes personalities conflict in the studio. And like I said, with the William Shatner, uh, thing, but um, the end result is what's important. I was going to wonder about the Spider-Man one. You know, it being so close to the movie as well, right? Um, w- was there a lot of focus on keeping the dialogue accurate and kind of, you know, there'd obviously be sequel films coming out and stuff. Uh, you know, making sure the storyline was was consistent with the uh, Spider-Man world. Yeah, it was really cool actually on Spider-Man because. A select group of us, only a, a small amount of people, uh, were allowed to go and read the script, you know, before the movie was out or even finished, I think. And uh, it was top secret to see the script. So, like, we had to go in, if I'm remembering correctly, like a few at a time, and they wouldn't let us leave the room with the script. We had to read it right then and there, and they watched us. So, we had the advanced knowledge of reading the script and, and seeing the, you know, getting an idea of what the movie was going to be like, you know, before, you know, working on the video game and that, you know, ha- having read the scripts, uh, the script for it, you know, really get, informed us to, um, you know, to make a, a video game that would be a, you know, a, an equal companion for the movie. Well, then you mentioned, you know, Konami, you um, became a senior producer there as well. Uh, what kind of products were you working on? So I was mostly working on the music games like Cherokee Revolution, American Idol, and all the sequels of it. Um, I worked on Saw, like I said, that was at Konami. I worked on um, um, some some other music games uh, at Konami as well. Similar to to Rock Band, um, it's called Rock Revolution. You know, obviously it wasn't. It, it was Konami's version of Guitar Hero or whatever, and uh, yeah. it wasn't quite a success. Um, that that particular title, but it was a lot of fun, fun to make, and um, just working on all those music titles, and then Saul, and, and working on Saul too. Saul as well was really cool. Yeah, I was gonna say because Saw, like the game, was really sound effects heavy. Oh yeah, um, you know, with the atmosphere as well, and every aspect of it, like the dripping sounds, and you know, kind of everything. It must have been a, a lot of work to kind of create those soundscapes. Oh yeah. Um, it was funny because we weren't the first publisher to get to work on that game. Another publisher had worked on it first, and believe it or not, from what I heard, they weren't even familiar with the Saw horror movies. So they they got the the IP to work on, but they didn't really know the IP. And so when they started working on it, and they got the first portable slice of the game or what have you, they showed it to the um, to the movie studio and to the creators of Saw, and they were very un- unhappy. Um, it didn't have sort of like the the scariness and the gore and everything else that they knew Saw fans would want in the video game. So that it came to Konami after that. And 
as one of the producers of the game, I was familiar with the R franchise. So were some other people who were working on the game. So we were able to make it more authentic and to, to deliver to the IP holders, you know, the the studio and the, the saw directors and writers what they wanted, you know, because it's their legacy, obviously, and to have video game as part of their their movie world go along as a companion to it. They wanted the best, obviously, game possible. So uh, we really worked hard to, you know, make the IP holders, you know, happy with it. So yeah, there's a lot of a uh, kind of tradition in video games to do something that's completely different from the movie and, and release it with you know the movie's name and kind of association right and uh this this seemed uh, completely accurate to the saw world oh yeah yeah that was a lot of fun i was um wondering how much crossover there was with voice actors in the industry so uh jen taylor she was in saw and um she'd also you know, done the voice of Princess Peach in the previous Mario games and uh, Cortana in Halo. Were there like some regular voice actors that you would, uh, you know, work on many different projects with? Uh, Some, you know, that was the same too when I worked at Mattel, you know, working with some of the same actors who do the different doll voices and things like that. You know, I was working with some of the same actors uh, reoccurring. And that's great when you can work with the same actor more than once because you develop a relationship with them and you, you know each other's shorthand and you know how they work. And you, you, it's, uh, you know, obviously makes for a better final result when you can have that history with the person and, and uh, know, you know, like I said, know how they work and know how to work with them and get the best possible results. So out of all of the kind of titles you've worked on in, in the video game industry, what was your, what was your favorite experience? Well, I'm a diehard NFL fan, so working on Madden was was very exciting. Um, oh, that must have been huge as well. Another another massive franchise. Yeah, working on that at EA, that was big for me. I mean, working on the movie games like Spider Man, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, because like I said, I was sort of a film and TV composer wannabe, so film and TV was was where I came from and from USC and everything. So having that, you know, video game movie crossover was especially meaningful to me, you know, doing that and Minority Report and and, uh, and other game, movie games like that and TV show games like American Idol. Yeah, those were all really cool experiences. And of course, working on something like Fallout was uh, was great. Anything was like where it involved so much creativity to really, uh, you know, make a good, you know, make a good game. It's what we all want, obviously, what we're all striving for and or make a great game rather. But even, you know, the intense work at Starfleet Academy of doing that sort of music tree, the interactive music tree. It was so much work, but the payoffs and having it work in the game and seeing how great it worked, um, those are nice successes to have too. And they're not necessarily, you know, the most, you know, it doesn't make for a dramatic story or anything like that with a Hollywood actor or some, something like that. But to put in this certain amount of work like we did with Spider-Man 2 as well, and then have the end result be as successful as it is, as it was, uh, those, those are just great feelings when you work really hard and it pays off, you know. So, but what would you say was the kind of average time you'd spend on a project? Because looking at um, something like you know GTA Six that's coming up, I can imagine the dialogue in that is uh, you know probably a hundred times more than uh, you were doing back then. Yeah, I mean, when I was doing sound, um, you know, we were the last people in the next to the last people last in QA, of course, uh, that would get our hands on the game. And uh, so we we would be involved towards the later stages when we were putting sound in. But 
you know, when I became a producer and I was working on the, you know, the whole game, not just the sound, you know, those could run from a year, year and a half, not even two years for some, you know, being in, from development to, to shipping, just to petting, you know, games that, you know, have that are bigger and more epic, obviously, you know, like working on Superman Returns uh, at EA, you know, that was obviously that has its own stories. That wasn't, yeah. you know, a great success, obviously, but uh, a lot of work went into that and th- by that team and they worked on it a long time. I, I remember that. So it got delayed and all, all the rest. So, but yeah, I mean, a lot, and Madden obviously is an annualized title. So we basically ship a Madden and then start working on the next one, you know, almost immediately. So those were obviously, you know, less than a year to put those out. Well, nowadays you've left the uh, crunch behind and uh, you're a writer and, you know, you've put out some pretty awesome books as well. I can see, you know, you're on uh, the number one uh, Amazon's new releases uh, for one of your titles as well. And uh, they seem to be really popular. So can you tell our listeners about your books and uh, how they can get hold of them? Sure. So I've uh, written four books and uh, the most recent one is called Dead People. It's a science fiction novel, it's sort of like dark comedy science fiction, and uh, actually currently working on a graphic novel of, uh, of dead people with, um, with an artist who used to work with Marvel. So I'm real excited about that because it, it'll be a great transformation to have it in graphic novel format, you know, with the illustrations and everything else. Um, totally. And uh, so, yeah, I've written three novels in a nonfiction book. Dead People, like I said, is my most recent one, and that's actually supposed to be book one of a series. And, uh, you know, I work on the film and TV adaptations of these these books as well, and so that's always exciting. And uh, t- just getting them in different formats, like I mentioned, you know, the graphic, no- graphic novel of, of Dead People, which will hopefully come out not too, not too long from now. But I have a, a website, studlessrapreport.com, and all my books are on there. And you can read about them and they link into uh, Amazon and obviously uh, to where you can purchase them. Well, we love uh, a a bit of sci-fi and a a bit of humor with it as well. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm seeing at the moment, you know, some people are quite saying it's got a bit of a a Terry Pratchett vibe as well, which, um, you know, our listeners are are very into, (laughs) Yeah, which is great. Yeah, I definitely wrote it with with some dead people with some tongue in cheek. It's, um, It's dark, but I... I hope it's it's funny, funny dark. Oh yeah, the British we love uh, our dark humour as well. So yeah, well Doug, it's been uh, absolutely amazing to talk to you, and uh, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. 